Psalm chapter 75. We'll be reading the entire thing. Follow along with us. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks, for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with iniquity. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. Selah. I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up. But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. But I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Westside. Good morning. Hopefully, uh, last weekend, you had a great opportunity to celebrate all of our lovely moms and women of Westside with Mother's Day. Uh, happy belated Mother's Day uh, from a week ago. It's still on my heart. We love you guys, and we're thankful for you and all that you do. Um, now, if you've been following along with us in our weekly gatherings on Sunday mornings, uh, we have been in the book of the Psalms. And specifically through this series, we've been looking at book three of the Psalms, and we have been sort of taking this tagline along with us of what it is to be honest with God. What does it look like to be honest with God? We say time and time again with this language that God is always present and at work, and God meets us in reality. Reality is where honesty is and where truth resides, not where lies or ignoring our problems or anything like that, but God meets us in reality. So our goal through this series is to be honest with God. And so two weeks ago in Psalm 74, uh, if you remember, Pastor Jason sort of walked us through um, a passage in 2 Chronicles that kind of gave context for that psalm. If you remember, like the temple was captured and like burned, the, the tools for worship were destroyed and burned with fire. Um, that was something that, that was very terrifying and also very sad for the people of Israel. And so Psalm 74 was like a, a cry for deliverance, uh, if you will. Um, now, in Psalm 75, the text that was just read to you, we actually have a cry of victory. Um, and with some of the language in there, it may not actually sound like a victorious psalm, but it really is. And what I'm going to do this morning, just to kind of introduce this psalm to you, is to sort of unpack the context of it and where we are. Um, and real quickly, uh, just to sort of unpack that, um, the, the people of Israel had 12 tribes. One of the tribes was called Judah. And the tribe of Judah was about to be attacked by these, by these people, this, this nation called the Assyrians. And they were, la they were led by a, a very... Um, uh, 
obnoxious and uh, angry man named Sennacherib. And he actually came to overthrow the tribe of Judah and to capture them, but God saved them miraculously by his own hand. And that's where we get this psalm from. We have recordings of this in Isaiah, both chapters 37 and chapter 30. In Isaiah 37, it says, Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, the king at the time, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, this is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. And then we get more verses talking about the arrogant, the arrogance, excuse me, of Sennacherib and the Assyrians, how that ultimately led to their fall and to their demise. And then we have an interesting account of this in Isaiah chapter 30. It says this, You shall have a song, a song, as in the night when a holy feast is kept, and gladness of heart as when one sets out to the sound of the flute to go to the mountain of the Lord, the rock of Israel. And the Lord will cause his majestic voice to be heard and the descending blow of his arm to be seen in furious anger and a flame of devouring fire with a cloudburst and storm and hailstones. The Assyrians will be terror stricken at the voice of the Lord when he strikes with his rod and every stroke of the appointed staff that the Lord lays on them will be to the sound of tambourines and lyres. The lyre, is not, it's not like a person, it's like an instrument, like, like a flute or something, or a harp, I'm sorry. Um, isn't that great news, though? Like in the midst of, of God delivering the, the people of Judah, the tribe of Judah, from the Assyrians, he's like, this is going to be such good news for you. It's going to be like music to your ears. It's going to be like something that you want to sing about in the future, and that's where we get this psalm from. Asaph writes this psalm to sing a cry of victory because of what God has done delivering them from the hands of their enemies. And so, that being our context, I want to talk a little bit about what it is to live in victory. Since this is a cry of victory and what it is to live in victory for us today, what does that mean for us? But I want to unpack that phrase for just a second, living in victory. Here's what it doesn't mean. Living in victory does not mean that nothing bad ever happens to you. Okay, living in victory does not mean that you will always get the bonus or you will always get the raise or that you will never get sick or that everything will always be fine. I'm, I'm so tired and, and weary of hearing of, of how God's will for my life is only for me to be prosperous and healthy and wealthy. That is not the gospel. That is a false gospel. God promises to be with us through the trying times. And he promises us an eternity with him because of his victory in Christ. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, and knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So what does living in victory look like in context of how Paul is painting this to the Corinthians? 
He's saying that regardless of where you're at in life, regardless of whether or not you are facing trials and hardships or you're in success and, and on a mountaintop in your life, none of it is in vain if you live in the victory that was given to you through Christ on the cross and that empty grave. That's good news for us, that we get to share in the victory of Jesus. And the big idea that we have this morning, as we've seen how God has delivered the people of the tribe of Judah from the Assyrians, we can draw implications to our life with this big idea of God fights for us. God fights for us so we don't have to. We live in a victory that was caused by a battle that we didn't fight because God fights for us so we don't have to. So what we're going to look at this morning are four points that we see in the text, four points that sort of show us how to live in victory and enlighten our understanding to know that God fights for us so that we don't have to. The four things that we see are this. We start with thanks, we stifle our pride, we submit to God, and finally we see Jesus. We see Jesus. So let's look at that very first point. We start with this. We start with thanks. We start with thanks. Look at verse 1 in Psalm 75. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. I love this. Like Asaph, before he even begins addressing like the context of what we're in in this psalm and what he's thankful for, he just says he's thankful. It's like, it's like an actor who's winning an Academy Award or like a musician who's winning a Grammy and they walk up on stage and they got three minutes, but they spend every millisecond thanking their Nana, their Boo Boo, their Daddy, and their third grade baseball coach who all helped them miraculously get to where they are today. That's what we have coming from Asaph in this psalm. He's starting with thanks. But what is he thankful for? We start with thanks, but what are we thankful for when we start with thanks? Well, look at this next line. It says, we give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks that your name is near and we recount your wondrous deeds. We recount your wondrous deeds. What wondrous deeds is Asaph talking about here? What, what is this Psalm referring to when it says wondrous deeds? Well, a Asaph was a Levite. Asaph was actually a part of a group of people who were the modern day worship leaders for the temple at the time. And, Le and Asaph's great, great, great relatives were actually the first Levites, worship leaders in the temple at the time. So who better to know the stories of the people of Israel and their history than Asaph? He's in the temple all the time, singing God's praises, remembering what he has done. He would have been referring to, in this, in this verse here, uh, the Exodus, where God raised up Moses and delivered the people of Israel out of slavery and captivity in Egypt, who led them through on dry ground in the Red Sea and crushed the waters on top of the Egyptian armies and Pharaoh himself. The wondrous deed of God guiding the people of Israel through the wilderness for 40 years and feeding them with food from the sky. He would have been talking of the wondrous deeds of leading those people day and night with a pillar of fire and a cloud of smoke and then leading them into the promised land where the next generation would go through and receive the inheritance that was given to them because of God's word and because of what he had promised them. And now, to all of those wondrous deeds and everything that had happened in Israel's history, Asaph is now adding another reason to give thanks to God because he's delivered them in this moment. He's delivered them from the Assyrians. He's done it again. For you and me, man, it's so easy it is so, so easy to get caught in constantly wondering and worrying about the future, about what is coming next. I mean, goodness, we're in the middle of a pandemic. 
our state, the state of Missouri, is just barely starting to open. We still see cases, and we're all wondering whether or not is my business going to survive if I open up my small business? Is, 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 are things gonna, is now the right time? To, uh, are we going to get sick? Or what's going to happen in three months? How's the church going to deal with all, uh, all of these questions that we have running through our minds at an incredible rate are causing us to focus on the future and not the present. God's word said that he goes before us. So we don't have to worry about the future. And he says he's always with us so we can dwell in the present. So what does this mean for us? What's the application in this for us? The application is this, is that remembering the past makes us thankful for the present. Remembering the past makes us thankful for the present. Asaph is doing this. How can you and I engage in this? How can we remember what God has done and spur us to be thankful today? Even in the midst of a pandemic, even in the midst of, of quarantine and isolation and, and going months without seeing family members or seeing friends. Listen, some of you right now, and this may resonate with you, but you've gone through the ringer. Some of you have gotten bad diagnoses from the doctor. Some of you have had loss of loved ones in your family. Some of you have been through the ringer and trials financially with your emotional health, with your physical health. And I know, I know that most of you that I'm thinking of in my mind right now have seen God walk with you through those trials, that he has been there. He may have miraculously healed or saved or delivered, or he may have not, but he's been with you the entire time. That is the goodness of God. And that is something that can spur us to be thankful now and to be thankful today. I, I found a quote by um, a guy who did a wonderful job of remembering the past and being thankful for the present. Um, he was a, a, a former drug user and the Lord miraculously saved him. Um, and this is what he has to say. Just over 10 years ago, I was trapped in the throes of a heroin addiction. As in the nature of addiction, my life was filled with disorder of every sort, selfish living, frequent stealing, compulsive lying, and constant manipulating. I was in utter darkness, but God was overwhelmingly good to me, and he delivered me from the domain of darkness and transferred me into the kingdom of his beloved son. It is pure grace that I can rejoice in sobriety now, today, because the chains of my addiction took divine power to break then. What a perspective to have, to remember the past and what God has done and how he has always been there so that we can be made thankful now and today. So we've seen that in order to live in victory, we have to know that God fights for us so we don't have to. And the very first thing that we do is we start with thanks. We start with thanks, remembering the past. But secondly, we have to stifle our pride. We stifle our pride. Look at verses four through seven in your Bible of Psalm 75. I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn or your trumpet. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with a haughty neck. Um, I want to give you some, some context here uh, on these verses. Um, Asaph was not just a Levite and a, and, a, and a writer of the Psalms, but he was also a prophet. Um, so through him, uh, we don't just hear his voice, but we also hear the inspired words of Scripture and the voice of God. 
And so throughout these, this, these verses in Psalm 75, we see like chunks of scripture and some of them can be attributed to like Asaph's voice and some of them can be attributed to God's voice. They're all God's words and they're all Asaph's words, but we have almost like a characteristic change between the use of pronouns like I and he. And so notice this, he says, I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, don't lift up your horn. Don't lift up your horn on high. And look at verse six, not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes up lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment. And so what we have here is, is literally like the voice of God through scripture and through Asaph commanding, uh, it would have been the Assyrians like, hey, you don't need to be prideful because look what's gonna happen to you. But it's also for the people of Israel. Like, hey, look at what happens to those who are arrogant and those who are prideful. It is their fall, as Solomon says in Ecclesiastes. It is the fall of them is their pride. Um, this illustration might help guide us a little bit. On January 15th, 2009, U.S. Airways Flight 1549 left New York's LaGuardia Airport about 3.30 to head to Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, shortly after takeoff, uh, a, a swarm of birds got sucked into the engine and caused the engine to blow out and both engines to fail. And uh, the pilot at the time uh, made the decision to crash land the plane on the Hudson River. Um, no, in, no deaths and just a few injuries. It became known as the miracle on the Hudson. Um, super, super cool. And the captain at the time, his name was Chelsea Sullenberger III, which is a super dope name. He had like 40 years of pilot experience all the way leading up to this crash, four decades of flying planes. And I didn't know this until recently, but uh, January of this year was ten, the 10 year like anniversary, if you want to call a plane crash anniversary, if you want to call it that. Um, but Chelsea Sullenberger, the captain, the third, and all of the crew and all of the passengers that were on the plane got together to like celebrate that they all survived this crash. And they got together not to just celebrate the fact that they were still alive, but they celebrated the people who helped them. They celebrated the ferry boat drivers. They celebrated the tugboat drivers and, and the Coast Guard and everybody who came in that moment to, to help get them off the plane and dry them off because the river was cold and take them to safety. And in that interview, in, at that meeting, at that reunion, there was an interview of the captain, and he's recorded saying this. Listen to these words. I had to have a paradigm of how to solve any problem in an airplane and apply it to this situation to impose order on chaos. But then he continued, we're standing on the shoulders of everybody else who has done this job before us, who has made this system so robust and resilient and who have the dedication to do whatever it takes to save every single life. Tell you what, if I was the captain of that plane and had four decades of experience, I would have been like, I've had four decades of experience. Of course I crash landed safely on the Hudson and no one was hurt. Do you hear the humility in his words? This is like a perfect, a perfect mirror of what we see in, in the scriptures here, what Asaph is saying and what God is saying through him. Don't be prideful. We have to submit our pride. Look at these words. He says, don't boast, don't make much of yourself. He says, don't lift up your horn or like blow or announce a trumpet to show that you have succeeded or won in something. And he says, don't speak with a, with a haughty neck. And that's, that's an, a farm animal reference, like a goat that's like so stiff necked, you can't, you can't put um, any kind of, of guiding a tool or correctional um, handiwork that he can help you with on him. It's, it's basically somebody who, who is resisting correction or resisting guidance. He's saying, don't be like that. He's not just saying it to the Assyrians. He's saying it to the people of Israel. 
He's also saying it to us. I was having a, a conversation with a friend this past week, and he said, a prideful Christian is an oxymoron. And I love that, because, because the people in the text, the people of Israel needed saving, and we see time and time again all throughout Scripture that they're prideful, that they leave God for other gods, and that they're constantly trying to do their own will in their own way. We see that happening over and over again. And he's saying they needed saving and they were prideful. What's sad and crushing for us is that we've been saved and we're still prideful. Do you see the difference there? The people of Israel at the time needed saving and they were still prideful, but we have been saved by the blood of Jesus and we can still be as prideful as ever. Proverbs says this in chapter 21, haughty eyes and a proud heart are a lamp of the wicked. What does that mean? It means that, that it's the light that guides your path. Pride, prideful eyes and like a haughty and boastful heart is what guides a wicked, person, a wicked person's decisions every day of their life, every step they take, every conversation they have, whether it's an insecurity or an anger problem or a grudge or anything that they have. Pride is at the center of that. St. Augustine said pride is the mother of all sin because she's pregnant with all the rest. Pride is like this little factory in our hearts that pumps out idols that, that aren't God and try to replace him because the, we, we think we can fulfill it ourselves. It guides every single decision and direction that we make. How do we stifle pride? How do we, as Paul says, to put on humility? How do, we, how do we wear humility and put that on? Here are four things that I think that, that uh, can help us of, of seeing what does humility look like? What does humility look like in your life and in my life? Uh, well, first, it's this. You need to acknowledge the, a problem. Acknowledge the problem. Um, I'm pretty good at this, of pretending like the kitchen's not on fire and maybe going outside and like grilling instead because something's not right in the kitchen. I'm not sure what it is. Uh, ignoring the fact that, that uh, there's, there's some kind of conflict that's not been resolved either with my family or, or with my wife or with my kids or whatever. Um, in the midst of all of this, I am, am very guilty of, of not acknowledging the problem. And maybe you're, the, I don't know, maybe you're holier than me. Maybe you're the same way though. Do you have unresolved relationships has somebody hurt you and you've neglected to forgive them? Have you hurt somebody and yet not gone to them to apologize or to ask for forgiveness or to even acknowledge the problem? Or do you stuff it inside? God meets us in reality. God meets us in our honesty and in our truth. So we have to acknowledge there's a problem. Secondly, uh, sometimes humility looks like admitting you're wrong. This is a really hard one for some of us, admitting you're wrong. Some of us are so prideful we can't admit we're prideful. That at the moment anybody comes to you with any kind of correction or any kind of, of criticism, whether it's healthy or not, um, you explode on the inside and melt on the outside. Like there's nothing for you that can help sustain you in that moment of being critiqued because that is where your identity is wrapped up in and that is where your hope and your belonging and your significance are all wrapped up in what others think of you and you just can't be wrong. Listen, sometimes putting on humility means admitting our faults and that we are wrong. God's word says to, to confess your sins to one another and to pray for one another that you may be healed. We have to admit that we're wrong. The third thing I think that humility looks like is sometimes we have to absorb the blow. It looks like absorbing 
the blow. What do you mean by that? Um, there will be many, many times in your life uh, where you're not wrong, um, but it's better that you absorb the blow of being wrong. That's humility. That's exactly what Jesus did for you and me. Like in a moment, instead of, of uh, spewing venom back and forth with your spouse and yelling at one another, you can, you can quiet yourself, maybe take a few deep breaths and say, you know what, you're right. You're right. I did hurt you that way. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Christ did the same thing for us. God's word says this in Philippians about the humility of Christ. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, didn't even count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in his human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If that's not absorbing the blow, I don't know what is. I don't know what is. Christ absorbed the blow for you and I, so now we can put on this mind among ourselves, which is ours in Jesus, to count the needs of others more important than our own and to not do anything out of selfish ambition or conceit. We absorb the blow. And the fourth thing is this, is we apply what we learn, applying what you learn. I have discovered over the last few years of my life, painfully, myself included, that some Christians are the hardest people to get to apply new knowledge and what they need to learn. And I'm, not, I'm not saying that we need to forsake the truths of God's word and what we know to be true and to be holy and to be good. I'm saying some of us have heard the same message over and over and over, whether it's repentance or whether it is, it is uh, salvation or, or whether it is, is love and how to love your neighbor as yourself or forgiveness, any of these things over and over for decades, never making any kind of application to your life. That's a problem. That's a problem. We need to apply what we know. The psalmist says in Psalm 119, I have hidden your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. We have been given this gift of God's word. We have been given the gift of his son. And week after week after week with the gift of his spirit alive inside of us, we have an opportunity to apply what we know. Paul says to the Romans, don't be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We need to think differently. We need to view the world through a different lens, through a lens of perhaps humility. We need to stifle our pride. So great. Those are, those are four great applications, but, but what's, the, what's the big application for this? Um, ultimately, in the end, the only way to remove pride from your life is to remove yourself from the center of your life. That's it. I don't know how else to say it, but the only way to remove pride from your life is to remove yourself from the center of your own life. I would challenge you this week, 
Um, wherever you are, maybe you're, you're kind of getting brave and running off to restaurants or stores, that's okay. And maybe you're, you're looking around at other people and maybe they're not wearing a mask or they didn't wash their hands, that's not six feet. What's at the center of all of that? You, your safety, your, your, uh, your security in that moment and your control over it. I would challenge you this week where you look around, maybe look through at these people and at, at everybody in your world through the, through the lens of humility through the lens of humility. So we have to start with thanks. We submit, we stifle pride. And then thirdly, we submit to God. Look at verses seven and eight. But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it. And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it to the dregs shall drain it to the dregs. If there is a word in 2020 that smells like poo and feels like it too, it's submission. Nobody likes to hear the word submission, whether it's wives submit to your husbands or husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and then submit to him, Christ, who is the head of all. Submission on what God has to say in his word about your finances or how you should forgive those who hurt you. Submission is a dirty word in 2020. But we are told here that God is the judge. God is the true judge who rescued the people of Israel from the Assyrians, but is also teaching them and showing them and us that God is the one who judges and fights for us so we don't have to. So who better to submit to than God? Who better to submit to? Um, There's there's a line in this verse, in verse 8, for in the hand of the Lord there's a cup with foaming wine. And it's well mixed. Um, what we understand this and what commentators, as I've read, um, they understand this is the cup of God's wrath. The cup of God's wrath. There's a passage in Revelation chapter 16 where we actually, we actually see a little bit of this um, poured out. And it says this in verses 17 through 19. Uh, the seventh angel poured out from his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple of the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath to the dregs. It's just an old term for the bottom of the barrel. There's a lot of swirling language here, and there's a lot of stuff that we don't have time to get into, but the message is clear. Where there is no repentance, there is God's wrath. Where there is no submission to God and His will through Jesus Christ, there's wrath. The cup of God's wrath is poured out. And that's heavy news for us. That's heavy news. But can I submit to you that it's good news? Can I submit to you that it's good news to know that we have a God who fights for us and that when we choose to submit ourselves to him and that when he calls us to be submitted to him in and through Jesus Christ, we can live life in victory knowing that God fights for us so that we don't have to. Romans chapter 12 verses 18 through 21 says this, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. 
For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay it, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We are given a new path now, a new path that we have through Christ to not hold grudges against our enemies or to take vengeance on our own, but to love them, to feed them, to clothe them, to give them drink and to help them in times of need. How do we see all of this accomplished? Well, we start with thanks. We stifle our pride. We submit to God. And lastly, we see Jesus. We see Jesus. Look at verse 9 of Psalm 75. But I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. We know how this was accomplished. In the midst of a great need, maybe feeding the 5,000, Jesus was thankful first. He started with thanks. We see that with his thanks to the Father. In the midst of temptation, in Matthew chapter 4, in the garden, in the wilderness, excuse me, Jesus rebuked temptation and rebuked pride and said, Get behind me, Satan. You shall, not, you shall only worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus rebuked pride. In the midst of the garden, he submitted himself, saying to God, If at all possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. It's, it's the reason that, that we believe and that we love Jesus Christ because of who God is and what he has done through Jesus. That Jesus is the model for starting with thanks. Jesus shows us how to stifle pride and how to submit to God. And we see him. This is why we never, we never blow past the verse of in Christ alone, the last verse of, and on that cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin on him was laid. Now here in the death of Christ, I live, I live. I'm gonna close with a quote from Pastor Stephen Lee. He's a pastor in Minnesota and he paints it beautifully for us. There at Golgotha, our savior drained God's cup of burning anger down to the dregs. God poured out his wrath, full strength, undiluted onto his son. Paul summarizes the meaning of this great event. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath for us, so that he could extend the cup of God's fellowship to us. It might include suffering, but not wrath. We don't get wrath anymore. Now we get God. We get the sweet, satisfying reality of his eternal fellowship in Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. This is the cup we drink now and forever. This is the cup that we offer to those who don't know him yet, imploring them in God's mercy, come, drink this cup with us because Jesus drank that cup for us. That is good, good news. So in closing, I have four questions for you really quickly to help you help guide through what it is to live in victory and know that God fights for us so that we don't have to. Um, what has God done in your life and how can that spur you to thankfulness? What has God done in the past and how can that spur you to thankfulness now? Secondly, are you prideful? And how does that show itself in your life? Ask the Lord to reveal those moments of pride to you in your life. Thirdly, where am I not submitting to God in my life? 
Where am I not submitting to his word? Where am I not submitting to the Holy Spirit, to God the Father, to God the Son and the price that he paid? Am I not submitting to knowing that he is present and at work in my life? with my tongue, with with my heart, with my hands, with my finances, with my mind? And lastly, do I treasure Jesus? Do you love Christ, man? Do you treasure and know that the cup of God's wrath was consumed and poured out entirely by Jesus and on Jesus and now we drink the cup of his fellowship and are invited into his family? Do you treasure Jesus? Do you treasure Jesus? We can live in victory because we know that God fights for us so we don't have to. Let's lift our voices and pray the Lord's Prayer aloud together this morning. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.